This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tabiri. Our next story is truly a wild one. It's about excess, money laundering, and getting filthy rich while incarcerated inside of a maximum security prison. This is the story of smuggled cell phones and infiltrating very large bank accounts. And here to share the story with us is Charles Bethay. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker, and he's based just down the road in Atlanta. Charles, welcome to Due South. Thank you so much. All right, so we're talking about a criminal conspiracy led by Arthur Cofield, an inmate in Georgia who, as you write in your recent piece, quote, probably stole more money from behind bars than any inmate in American history, close quote. We'll get to the specifics of the ruse in a moment, but first, tell me a little bit about Arthur Cofield's beginnings. Sure. So he grew up in um, in a suburb of Atlanta, um, East Point, which is also where the rapper Young Thug happens to be from. They're about the same age, both in their early 30s now. Uh, Young Thug, as some listeners may know, is also in the midst of a a pretty uh, high-profile trial right now uh, involving his rap group YSL. Mm -hmm. But anyway, they grew up, uh, we don't know if they knew each other, but they both grew up in in East Point. And Cofield, unlike uh, Young Thug, got really, and most people probably he knew in uh, East Point, got really into motocross racing um, when he was young. And his family didn't have a lot of money. I would say they grew up lower middle class. His dad was a contractor um, who, and, and they had uh, another kid. So there were a couple kids, uh, sort of a blue collar um, breadwinner, but they put a lot of that money into, Co- into young Arthur Cofield's racing career. He was very, very good at motocross, um, somewhat unusually for uh, a, a young black man. It's mostly a, a white sport. Mm-hmm. And he traveled um, in this sort of uh, retrofitted van that his dad uh cobbled together and he did very well. He was one of the top motocross racers in the country when he was seven or eight years old. So an unusual start um, to his story, uh, which dramatically shifts um, by his early teens. He starts to sort of fall away from racing and from that friend group. And he, you know, he gets, he gets involved with kids who um, are, are breaking rules and, you know, doing doing some drugs and partying and such. And by age 16, he decides uh, to rob a bank. And the bank's not too far from where he lived. And he was driven by a friend of his older brothers. And they showed up. Cofield gets out, goes in. He's the, he's the stick-up guy. Mm-hmm. He demands the money. And he walks out with a little less than $3,000, uh, gets in the car, the whole... Stack of money blows up in his face with the dye packet that they'd inserted uh-huh, in it, and he's uh-huh. and he's caught uh, down the road, and that sends him to prison where his real adventure begins. Okay, so as you know, where the real adventure begins is a young man, botched bank robbery, smoke and dye pack, as you note, that was hidden in a, a relatively small pile of money for robbing a bank, less than $3,000. The young men who orchestrate this bank robbery crash soon after getting down the road. Fair to say this is hardly, at least initially, uh, from from his criminal standpoint, this is hardly a sophisticated operation, right? Right. No, he's yeah, he's just 16. He hasn't completed much education that we know of. 
Um, and this doesn't appear to be a criminal mastermind at this point. Okay. Yeah. At this point. So he, he is sentenced to 14 years in prison. He, he goes in, uh, and as you know, that's in many ways, really the start of this story and the start of what we're talking about today. Uh, so he, he starts to gather cell phones or he starts to ostensibly collect cell phones. Tell me what else he's beginning to do in prison during this time. Sure. And just one note on on the cell phone part first, uh, the, the context here is that there's a, a massive uh, problem, um, most would say, with cell phones and other contraband in prisons throughout the United States. And Georgia is no, is no outlier. There's thousands and thousands of phones in every single prison. And so Cofield was particularly good at, at getting them, um, which requires typically bribing guards who don't get paid much mm-hmm. uh, to bring phones. And those guards are happy to sell, many of them happy to sell a $50 cheap phone for $2,500, let's mm-hmm. say, to a, an inmate. So he was, he was good at that, but there are others who are also doing that. Um, but while he was in prison, um, beginning to sort of come up with schemes uh, uh, like the one we'll discuss, he also was meeting a lot of people um, who were going in and out of prison, uh, some of whom seemed to have become um, or certainly did become accomplices of his um, in furtherance of all manner of of, uh, of schemes, including the one that ended up netting him millions of dollars. And those people, some of them grew up with him. Um, some of them he probably just met behind bars. We can mm-hmm. only speculate a little bit about how they all right. came together, but ultimately they created a group. Um, Cofield was the head of the group, along with a guy named DaVincio Rogers, who was in for a murder charge. Uh, they created a group called Young and Paid, or YAP. Um, you'll hear sort of a you know similarity to, to, to YSL. It's another one. That's the Young Thug group. Mm-hmm. It's another one of these sort of three-letter uh, groups that um, maybe have some legitimate business, but also some illicit activity in, in the case of YAP. They did have a rapper who sort of was there, the face uh, of the group on the outside, who was you know getting on YouTube and putting out, putting out videos where mm-hmm. there was often you know really expensive cars, really expensive mansions, and he was rapping. And I'd say he's a pretty average rapper, but he was rapping about <laughs> the money, he was rapping about sure. the lifestyle, and he was rapping about Cofield, who he was crediting with all of the stuff that you're seeing in the videos. Cofield was was referred to within the group as lavish, as in lavish lifestyle. Right, so right. that's that's what was beginning to happen as well. Okay, so he's behind bars and he is building up some level of prestige, some level of notoriety, and he's mm-hmm. got this group of co-conspirators. They have these right. cell phones and now they're getting personal information. Uh, tell me what mm-hmm. just w- what they're up to and what they're trying to do at this point. Yeah, I think probably this, there, there's a little speculation here because he he didn't ultimately tell me everything about his scheme. Um, I learned a lot about it through court documents and seized phone records and such. But I think he was probably open to deploying any manner of schemes to make money from prison. But the one that he ultimately set on involved getting personal identifying information from people on the outside, typically billionaires, typically very old ones, people like Sidney Kimmel, uh, a movie producer who made uh, Crazy Rich Asians, mm-hmm. um, who's in his mid-90s. Uh, almost every one of his targets that he was successful with was over 75 or 80 years old. 
Um, and we think that he targeted them uh, precisely because a lot of uh, folks who are that old um, and perhaps that wealthy don't have like an online banking thing on their phone. They have obviously have bank accounts, but they, they let other people deal with those. And so they haven't set up the sort of online component. Um, and he, with that information that he's able to get, the, the, the social security number, the mother's maiden name, the address, et cetera, he's able to uh, create those online banking accounts that he can then use to uh, transfer money from the main account and then do whatever he wants with. And that okay. the, what he wanted to ultimately do, of course, was get it um, you know, in, in, invested in the things that he wanted to have when he got out of prison. And when he started doing this, he was only a few years away from getting out right. uh, on his fort from his 14 year sentence. So he was, he was trying to buy a house or multiple houses and he succeeded in that. Charles Bethay, staff writer for the New Yorker here on Due South. And we're chatting about Arthur Cofield and his, uh, ruse, his criminal conspiracy from behind bars, he gets the cell phones uh, into his cell. He gets some personal information, and then he starts bilking the private accounts of, of rich civilians. But, uh, Charles, I need you to go next level for me here. Let's say sure. that I want to imitate, I want to impersonate you on the platform formerly known as Twitter today. I could create a handle, Charles Bethay, and I could pretend to be you. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. But if let's even say I, I, I figure out your date of birth, your social security number, but now I wanna I wanna try to uh, drain some of the funds from your your savings. This to me seems like a a, a much more uh, consequential step. Was this just as simple as is filling out a, a an account <laughs> online and then tapping? Like it seems well, to me it shouldn't have been this easy. I agree. I mean, and this points to perhaps some security lapses at some of these banks, perhaps, um, yeah. places like Charles Schwab. But, you know, they, there were protocols. He, he wasn't able to simply do all of this through online interfaces that he was accessing via his contraband phones. He did have to talk um, to people at these banks, at Schwab, for instance. Mm-hmm. So he would uh, he would have to talk to people at places like Charles Schwab. Um, and so... You know, the, the fact that he was able to successfully impersonate somebody like Sidney Kimmel, a 90-year-old billionaire living in L.A. as he was, you know, a 30-year-old um, inmate in rural Georgia uh, with a bit of a southern accent, naturally. Um, you know, the fact that he was able to do that, I think, speaks less to his performance uh, abilities or actorly abilities and more to the maybe willing credulity of the people at these banks and such, uh, and not just banks, but also security, private security operations. He had to hire somebody to transport the gold that he bought with the money he took from Kimmel and others. Mm-hmm. Um, so at each stage, the people that he was hiring to do this stuff, I think what they saw or heard was just dollar signs and uh, and, and looked away or ignored the sort of hunches that they must have had. Uh, I took I talked to one guy who did the private security delivery of the $11 million in gold that Cofield bought with the Kimmel money. And there were lots of red flags for him, but ultimately he was, he told me he was just doing his job and he sort of ignored the question marks popping into his mind because it was his job to do what he was asked to do. So he did it. Um, So I think it, you know, his, his success points to the, to what can, you know, what can happen when there's lots of money to be made. People can, I think, 
not listen to their better sort of judgment. Sure, right, uh, right, with, with an apathy or a carelessness or, yeah, as, as, as you point out. So let me circle back for a moment. These, yeah. these, vo- these vocal impersonations, uh, you, you want to give them a grade <laughs> for me? Because uh, the, the way it reads in your um, piece is... I, I, yeah. um, I, was only, I, was only, I only was able to, to listen to or, uh, or report on what others heard. I didn't hear the recordings, but uh, they were described to me as being similar to... Um, Tyler Perry's character, um, Medea, if anybody's <laughs> familiar with that, that character, it's, uh, when he was having to impersonate a woman, but he seemed to be enjoying himself and probably, you know, getting really emboldened as this continued to work. And he raked in, ultimately we know of more than $15 million, but almost certainly, um, investigators think it could have been twice that. And he still has much of that money. And maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we don't know where a lot of it is. I want to ask you about the gold in just a moment. But you, yeah. you mentioned 15, at least million dollars, maybe as much as 30. How many people did, how many people were involved in this conspiracy? And uh, how, many, uh, how many victims are there? Both are, are are somewhat question marks. We know that there were definitely at least two others involved, principally involved in the uh, in the bank fraud and money laundering and identity theft. And those two people were charged. One of them was okay. Cofield's legal wife, a stripper um, named Aliyah Bennett, who he's never met in person, but who he hmm. he met uh, online as he did virtually everything from prison. And uh, and then her father, um, Eldridge Bennett, and we know that uh, both of them have pled guilty and received relatively light sentences. Um, I think Cofield was ultimately who prosecutors most cared about, but both of them did useful things for Cofield. Some of which we know about, some of a lot of which we may never know about because neither of them has yet been invited to write a memoir or confess to everything. Um, but Eldridge, for example, he's in his sixties. A guy who, <laughs> uh, well, let's go to the scene of Buckhead, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Buckhead is a Please. suburb um, of Atlanta, very well-heeled um, place, lots of mansions. This is where Cofield decides to buy uh, his dream home and talks to an architect who had built it, and he wants him to change it in sort of exacting ways. Um, and he's doing this you know, with, with a year left or so in prison. He's getting his home ready. And he's pretending, of course, that he's someone else when he's talking to all these people, including the architect. But anyhow, the person that he had on the scene to do to deal with all the logistics of reno- buying and renovating a home was Aliyah Bennett's father, Eldridge, um, again, who pled guilty. And among it, the things that he did for Cofield were things as simple as just sort of standing there on the curb as fancy stone was being delivered to renovate a pool to the much more uh, complicated and uh, potentially um, perilous activity of delivering, uh, I think, 11, 10 or $11 million in cash, like mm-hmm. in currency, mm-hmm. to a bank closing um, to buy the home. So he, he, did, he did both mundane things and very unusual things for Cofield. Um, and he... He was he was a, a very beloved guy, as it, as it turns out, in the neighborhood where the home was purchased. Uh, neighbors would go by and he'd chat them up. He was very kind. He also would tell stories that ultimately seemed to stretch uh, belief, such as being having been on the team that mm-hmm. killed Osama bin Laden. That was one story he told. 
Um, so these were two of the people. I just want to make sure I've got this right. This is Cofield's father-in-law. Uh, Correct. But his father-in-law, who he's never met before. Never um, met before, no. Yeah. Okay. So, so many different uh, places to, to take this. I guess I want to focus on the money for a moment. You mentioned mm-hmm. cash to close on a multi-million dollar property. There are these financial institutions that are authorizing multi-million dollar wire transfers without a live mm-hmm. body. Like there's one on the phone, but like, <laughs> right. it, it, it was just, it strikes me as remarkable yeah. that there weren't more red flags that were going off in the process of this. Is that just my naivete? Were you also like, what, how did this, how well, did this all, was it able to transpire? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can only speculate because I haven't, I haven't reported on a whole lot of transactions like this, but uh, it does strike me as unusual and troubling. Um, I think maybe the, the institutions at least would point to the fact that a pandemic was going on during part of this. And so probably there was a little less in-person uh, interaction in general. Um, but no, I mean, it's it's very troubling and it's very embarrassing. And Charles Schwab and Fidelity Bank um, have both tried to you know, diminish and minimize this as much as possible and point to the fact that they've reimbursed all of those who had money stolen. Um, but, but no, I mean, I think you're, you're dead right. This is, it's shocking that it, that it's this easy for somebody, um, in prison to do this. There's a line in here that I I want you to unpack a little bit for us. And it pertains to, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Cofield's, I I would say main co-conspirator or, or, or originator Mm -hmm. in this. Uh, it says, um, he bought 436 pairs of Reeboks. Tell me Mm -hmm. who did this and why, please. (laughs) Yeah, so this is this was his main co-conspirator, Davincio Rogers, who went by uh, Yap Ball or Yap Football. Um, he's a, in some ways, he's kind of a foil for Cofield. Uh, he's tall. He, Cofield is a short, sort of quiet guy, and and Rogers is this tall, kind of more flamboyant, colorful, attractive guy, more of a sort of born marketer. Whereas Cofield's a little bit more of the guy behind the, you know, behind, behind the scenes p- calling the shots. Um, and so this guy, Rogers, uh, he got out of prison at one point in, I think, 2018 for the sentence he was serving related to a, a manslaughter charge. And in a, in a sort of a, almost a Robin Hoodish flourish, he does buy, uh, according to somebody who, who knows of it, uh, more than 400 pairs of Reeboks for a bunch of kids at a mall in sort of a, a lower middle class part of Atlanta and gives them away, which is lovely. Um, he also is involved, um, on, on the sort of less lovely front with, uh, an attempted murder that Cofield tries to pull off while in prison. Um, so he did things with his phones that were, uh, that were, you know, a little, a little darker than taking a little bit of money from billionaires. He, he arranged for a hit, uh, that Rogers helped, um, pull off and, and pled guilty to helping pull off. Um, it wasn't, uh, they, they paralyzed a guy. He he did not die, but the man is paralyzed, and mm-hmm. you know it's tragic, and it and it's just like points to the fact that this, what can feel in some ways like this sort of, you know, you can root for Cofield to a degree. He's a, a poor. He grew up relatively poor, didn't have much education, went to prison, and and displayed some cunning and some cleverness and some sophistication. But he also, uh, unfortunately, seems to have developed some darker, uh, some darker ideas, um, including this. This uh, this hit that he put out, and so this guy Rogers helped with that, and uh, and he and and he also spent a lot of a lot of the money that they collectively um, bilked while, when he was out. But he wasn't out for long. He went back 
and is now back in prison, uh, no doubt communicating with Cofield still through their use of cell phones, which is something that's going to be really hard for any authorities to stop. This is Due South. Our conversation with New Yorker writer Charles Bethay continues in a moment. New Yorker staff writer Charles Bethay is joining us here on Due South. We're talking about Arthur Cofield, who orchestrated uh, a very sophisticated uh, criminal plan from behind bars in Georgia. And uh, if you and I are talking about it, obviously he got caught. Obviously enough red flags uh, were raised and alarms went off. And uh, his initial bank robbery conviction from 2007 uh, has has now rolled over to this money laundering and other mm-hmm. uh, conviction. And, and he's in prison for, I think, a, a minimum of uh, 150 months, if I remember correctly, from your, That's right, from your yeah. piece. Now, you mentioned earlier in our conversation this transaction of $11 million in gold bars. Charles, mm-hmm. where where's the gold? <laughs> I don't know. I have to confess, I don't know. The investigators don't seem to know. There have been many investigators involved in this case. They've all had ideas at a certain point about where they thought the gold was. Uh, but, uh, for instance, one, one chief investigator um, thought that it was in this big safe that, that Cofield uh, had in the house that he bought in Buckhead mm-hmm. with um, some of the, the, the money that he had taken from Sidney Kimmel and others. But when they got a, you know, a safe-cracking team in there and opened it up, it was empty. Um, it was believed that it could have been in, in one of the other homes where his accomplices were living that he had been paying for. There was hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash in one of those homes, but no gold bars. So it's really, it's very unclear. I mean, it, it could be anywhere. You, you buy gold because you, that's how you can launder money. It's harder to trace. Um, but it's also hard if you want to turn that gold, as I'm sure he does, back into money mm-hmm. uh, and completing the, the laundering cycle. Uh, it's really hard to find buyers for, I don't speak from personal experience here, but it's got to be hard to find buyers for $10 million of gold. Right. So, you know, the theor- one of the theories is that, and this is not something I've been able to substantiate, but it seems reasonable to assume that he could have dealt with a transnational terrorist organization. Just, just sort right. of let that soak it's, in for a second. It's an option, a transnational. It's an option. Terrorist organization, because there, or, or yeah, or some sort of criminal transnational criminal organization that's willing to deal in stolen gold. Um, it needs to be a very you know well financed group, and one that probably operates outside the United States. How he would have gotten in touch with such a group, if indeed he did, not totally clear. Um, but one would imagine the internet had something to do with it. This is a wild. This is just a wild story. I, I just need to like kind of, <laughs> kind of underscore that again. This is a wild story. This yeah. is about a young man who went to prison when he was 16 years old and then mm-hmm. uh, robbed billionaires of millions and millions of dollars. He obtained gold bars and gold coins, and uh, by and large, nobody knows. I mean, presumably, Cofield knows where uh, much of much of that has gone. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I'm going to steer us in a in a slightly different direction. As I read this story, I was thinking about, you know, potential reforms, whether there are reforms that have been proposed or enacted as it pertains both to the financial side of things, 
uh, and, uh, you know, allowing different kinds of wire transfers to take place under, I don't know, certain circumstances, as well as within uh, the corrections institutions. Because as I read your story, it was, I just kept going back to the phones, the phones, the phones. And I thought, gosh, like the the phones are, are really the catalyst here. You write toward the end of your piece, Earlier this year, Georgia's Attorney General Chris Carr announced that he and 21 other attorneys general were pushing Congress to pass a law allowing states to jam phone receptions, phone reception in correctional facilities, which is forbidden as a result of the Communications Act of 1934. I'm a former political reporter, so I'm going to go a little wonky here, but I thought this was interesting. Take us, if you would, to both sides of this argument about whether or not cell phone service should be jammed for inmates. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to point to um, the, 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 the really good things that come from allowing prisoners to have cell phones. And the vast majority of them are, of course, not deploying sophisticated or unsophisticated criminal schemes. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly some are, but Cofield is an anomaly. Um, so most people are using phones in prison to do stuff like call family, uh, uh, communicate with friends, read the news, you know, just to to distract themselves from the otherwise you know horror of being in an American prison which we increasingly know is a pretty awful experience uh, even if you quote unquote deserve to be there they're pretty abysmal places pretty horrifying um, right? s- s- horrifying so so yeah most people so th- there's an argument that you should allow prisoners to have these devices um, that that can do some good for them for their mind state for their their mental health and and that are it's actually turns out it's a lot, lot less expensive for them to be using those phones um, than it is for them to use the prison phone systems which are sort of uh, uh, they're they're crazy expensive I, I can't give you exact numbers but the the cost of using those phones is kind of ridiculous it's a bit of a scam itself so um, and then the other then the the additional thing is that uh, if you if you somehow were to block or jam phone reception in correctional facilities, you could you could do damage to the overall safety of the facility, mainly because you need other people, uh, guards and such, who have cell phones and other people who work at the prisons. You need them to be able to use them in emergency situations. So, if you jam an entire area in order to try to uh, prevent prisoners from using them, you're also going to potentially prevent um, safety uh, or other you know workers in prison from using them. So it gets complicated, basically. Um, it, right. It sure is complicated. And the one other, I think, important note of context to remind people is that contraband, as you have noted, plenty of others have noted, gets into prisons because corrections officers are, are quite often willing to accept bribes. And what's the reason for that? They're so underpaid. Yeah, they're paid terribly. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So Arthur Cofield uh, pleads guilty and he has an allocution in a court of law and he talks about, uh, he acknowledges what he did, right? He he has an allocution. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The judge asked Cofield to explain what he'd done. I'm going to pull from your piece here for a second. Without visible emotion, he described gaining access to bank accounts belonging to Sidney Kimmel and to the doctor in Alabama, using their funds to buy gold coins and shipping the coins to Atlanta. I got possession of it. I think that's enough, the lawyer said. The judge accepted this, then shook his head. 
if you would have taken the ability and knowledge you have and put it towards something that was legal and right, the judge began to say in Cofield's direction, I would be investing my money with him, one of the lawyers said. I, that, that was just such a poignant and powerful scene. It, it struck me as, listen, a, a middle-class white kid who's had all kinds of doors and opportunities in front of me that, oh yeah, Arthur, Arthur Cofield, he, he just, he had a, he had a business mind, right? Like he, this yeah. is this is the option that was available to him. It's not to give him a pass on it. He broke the law and he should be in prison. But uh, th- that's how it struck me. T- t- tell me about how you deciphered that moment. Yeah, I, I, I felt the same way and come from a similarly privileged background. Um, but the judge, I, I did ask some other lawyers who, who had been in that judge's courtroom on other occasions what they made of that statement coming from that particular judge. And they said that I mean, it was very unusual for him to say something like that. So just to underscore the fact that this is not like a, a throwaway line that this judge just sort of, you know, offers to mm-hmm. to various uh, folks he's about to put away. Um, so there was that. I think it's also notable that uh, that uh, Cofield's lawyer team, two, two main lawyers, um, are uh, both have been employed by Donald Trump recently. Wild. And just to sort of the juxtaposition, because, um, of course, Trump, uh, as your listeners are aware, uh, is under indictment in Georgia for uh, for election related crimes, and um, and it's just so interesting to me to see this yeah you know this young black man in prison um, who did something very clever while in prison that under slightly different circumstances if he were outside and had different opportunities maybe different skin color etc he might have he might have been somebody who could have you know made a heck of a lot of money and even been as powerful um, as somebody in Trump's orbit. I mean, I'm not saying he could have risen to Trump himself, but you know, somebody who who had a lot of the ingredients that could have led to to, to a great degree of success on the outside, but um, you know, for for reasons we've discussed, didn't right. work out that way for him. And uh, and the fact that he nonetheless was able to hire Donald Trump's attorney is just just an insane thing to um, to think about. Let, one, one more, one more on on Arthur before we, um, before I move on. Just before I forget, uh, so he remains behind bars, long prison sentence. But is there any reason to think that he's not going to try to find another uh, game to play, so to speak? No, I mean, I mean, you almost can't blame him for. Uh, <laughs> he's he's you know he's he's thrown all of his chips into into his schemes in prison and yeah he he got found out he's now he's going to be in prison a lot longer but this is the thing that's probably kept him entertained and interested and awake in in prison and uh you know everybody that i've spoken to who's followed this case and studied it and investigated is it thinks that there's no no way he's just going to suddenly put put the phones away or give them back or stop asking for them and stop using them to try to Bilk money from uh, from wealthy, probably mostly white, you know, um, billionaires and millionaires who he probably has a certain amount of uh, revulsion for. Right. Uh, let's spend a couple moments on the uh, the Trump case, if that's okay. So, as you note, Arthur Cofield has the same attorney, or the the same attorney who is representing or has represented Arthur Cofield is also representing Donald Trump. This is a case that you are. Uh, reporting on and following closely in Georgia. And uh, yes, I acknowledge there are a lot of different uh, bits of litigation against the former president. So just remind us which case uh, you are following uh, that's playing out in Georgia. Um, I mean, it, it's it, it's part of his sprawling attempt to um, to overturn um, 
the election in his favor. Um, you know, Joe Biden's rightful uh, victory, both in Georgia and nationally. But in Georgia, um, there were various schemes. Um, probably the one best known to your listeners may be the phone call that he made to Georgia's Secretary of mm-hmm. State, in which, in which he asked for, and I'm not going to remember the exact number, but 11,347 votes or whatever it was, the exact margin plus one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference between what he got and what Biden got in Georgia, um, so that was one one of his one of his uh, schemes here, that is part of a RICO indictment uh, linking him to a whole bunch of other folks, uh, people like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows and and much lesser known people like um, somebody who was once Kanye West's publicist, um, <laughs> something like eighteen or nineteen of them overall, and uh, and I did recently write about a. a frankly, quite complicated uh, uh, tentacle of this of this scheme, which took place down in Coffee County, Georgia, which is uh, about three and a half hours south of Atlanta, uh, in which Trump's former attorney, Sidney Powell, one of the indicted co-conspirators, uh, was, was uh, caught paying for the breach of an election office and its software, its voting software that was created by D- Dominion Voting Systems, which probably... Um, rings a bell for folks mm-hmm. listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's lot, lots that we theoretically could uh, touch on here. I, I want to just throw you a curveball, and if there's something yeah. here that's great, and if not, we'll just move on from it. Um, you sure. have written about former North Carolina congressman and uh, Donald Trump chief of staff, White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Uh, you wrote mm-hmm. about his efforts to fraudulently vote in 2020. Uh, and I'm wondering what is new on the uh, Mark Meadows uh, docket? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I would love to be able to talk about that when I know a little bit more, but I haven't, I haven't, I haven't gotten deep enough into kind of where it, I think everyone is just sort of sitting back waiting to see, is he going to, is he, I mean, he seems to be participating um, with prosecutors in some fashion, but what's he given them? What's he going to, what's he going to testify to? I'm not sure yet. So I, I really can't say much of uh, much that's informative. Okay. No, totally understand. Um, what is not in the story, uh, the Cofield story that you you didn't for space issues for whatever that you weren't able to work in? Hmm. Good question. I've kind of uh, it's my practice to put out of my mind most of the cuts because you know healthy. it's yeah. uh, it stings a little to think back because he did a lot of reporting, but. Um, I think some of what I began to tell you about uh, regarding his motocross career, I think it's, you know, it's distilled down to a few paragraphs, one and a half to two paragraphs in the story that you read. But I think I had, you know, an entire 800 word section on that. Um, uh, And it was really interesting for the reasons I pointed out, partly because it's just such a unexpected thing for a young black man to do, much less a young man who ends up going to prison for bank robbery. Um, and his skill was just off the charts, but we felt like it was a little bit too much of a distraction from the main thrust of the, the narrative. So, um, I'm hoping that, and maybe this is one thing we can, we can close on or turn to before closing that if, and when there's a movie version of this Mm -hmm. done, which I've been having some discussion about with some people in Hollywood who are quite serious about it, uh, hopefully they can, they can do something with that because I think it would be a really interesting uh, thing to see. Uh, I mean, it's visually, it's obviously a pretty arresting thing to watch. Um, somebody do motocross, uh, for those of your listeners who've seen it, it's, 
you know, it's a, it's That's a crazy, intense. crazy, yeah. dangerous sport. And I think it points to his taste for risk, right? Um, his willingness to do that at a young age does seem like the right sort of psychological makeup for somebody to, to, to take on brazen kinds of, uh, crime later. Do you like the fact that this story comes out of your hometown, your hometown area, or do you wish it was from somewhere else? Do I like the fact? Yeah. Do you like the fact? <laughs> I do. I, mean, I yeah, I think Atlanta, Atlanta is a really, a really dynamic place, um, to choose a word that's not really, you know, overly negative or, or positive necessarily. Um, there's a lot, a lot happening here, uh, on the legitimate business front, the illegitimate business front, um, I'm glad to have these kinds of stories in my backyard. Maybe that's a little glib considering that there were victims, you know, here in sure. this case, but you know, most of them don't live here. Most of them can, can, can get along without $10 million or what have you. Right. Uh, but yeah, Atlanta is, Atlanta continues to prove itself to be, and this is true of the South, um, more broadly speaking, continues to prove itself to be a place where there need to be good reporters, um, whether it's, you know, print, uh, visual, audio, whatever, um, telling the stories of this region that I think, yes, for a long time has gotten somewhat overlooked um, because of the sort of myopia of uh, of the, the publishing industry in New England and West Coast. Mm. Charles Bethay is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's based in Atlanta, where he grew up, and he writes news, features, and the Letter from the South column. Charles, thanks for joining us here on Do South. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. It was fun. This is Due South, a WUNC production and broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. For Leonita Inge, I'm Jeff Tiberi. Talk to you tomorrow.